Welcome to Heavy Hitter Sports, the podcast focused on game-changing athletes and business leaders. Today's guest actually checks both of those boxes. I'm your host, Mark Hogesang, and I'm pleased to be talking to a friend and former Easton colleague of mine, Dick Grappenthine. Dick grew up in a small farming town in Iowa. His hard work, perseverance, and talent led Dick to a rewarding 10-year pro baseball career. Dick and I definitely talk about the game in this episode, but the life that Dick has led after hanging up his cleats is perhaps even more interesting and impressive, as you'll soon find out. Amazingly, Dick has continually found a way of humbly reinventing himself. He's worn many hats, but success has always been his constant companion, whether in sports, the corporate world, or now running his own company. If you love baseball, long for a glimpse into small-town America, or if you're thinking about a second career or starting your own business, I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. Dick, welcome. I am so looking forward to catching up, talking baseball, and having some fun. Thank you so much for joining me today. I would love to open by getting your thoughts on this quote from a fellow Indiana State graduate, Larry Bird, who said, I've got a theory that if you give 100% all the time, somehow things will work out in the end. Your thoughts? I think that's really true. I think hard work and never giving up, resilience and persistence is so important in success in life or whatever you do. I know it's important in sport. And what I did, I think it was being very persistent was good. Larry Bird was at Indiana State when I was there. He was a senior. I was a junior. And I actually played a D1 baseball game with Larry Bird. Wow. He played first base for us against a little D2 school, which was a very good baseball school named Kentucky Wesleyan. And he played in the first game. And believe it or not, first of all, he was a great athlete. He actually got the game-winning hit in that game. He got a single up the middle and drove in the winning run. We went two to one. I still remember it because his, his agent, Bob Wolf, was back then really a big agent. And he was right by the third base dugout while we were in. And he was just watching Larry the whole time because Bird had been drafted by the Celtics the year before. And at that time, you could sign up until the next NBA draft. So he played the whole year and then was going to sign. And so I think Bob Wolf was a little concerned he was screwing around playing baseball. So there was a little pop-up between catcher and first base. Bird was playing first. He dove for the ball and caught it. And our catcher ran into him. Oh, and there's, there's six, 7,000 people there because he's Larry Bird. He used to be a coach, at third base coach at a high school in West Vigo, and 10,000 people would show up to watch him coach third because he's that big. Anyway, so he just laid on the ground for a while, and people were like, you could hear a pin drop in the whole place. And then he jumped up, and he was all right. He was messing around, but he didn't play the second game, I don't think. <laughs> so... <laughs> couple of things come to mind as she regaled that story. One, you grew up in an era where you were playing multiple sports. I believe you played four sports in high school, right? And then the other thing is, no matter how good they are, athletes on some level, at least when they're young, think they're invincible. And it's a blessing, but also a curse because we'll talk about our Easton days together. But I can remember as you were talking about Larry Bird, Jeremy Roenick, who was playing for the Blackhawks at the time, was playing in our softball game in Lake Tahoe just having fun with us at a sales meeting. And I can remember him laying out for ball in left field. And I'm like, oh my goodness, please do not get hurt. Yeah. To put that a little in perspective, I grew up on a farm in Iowa, a real small town, consolidated school. We had 40 kids in my class. So yeah, I played four sports. You had to, if you were going to have teams in all these sports and shoot. I mean, I played in the band, man. We In Iowa, you had girl sports were first and then the guy sports were afterwards in the second game. Everybody came because there was nothing else to do. So I would play in the band 
during the girls game and then go and get dressed after the halftime of the girls game and play in the boys game because you had to you had to do that stuff it's just a crazy world and that's i what a great experience and a great little town and great people great work habits blue collar farmers it was a great place to grow up when did you first realize that baseball was going to play such a pivotal role in your life i always loved playing baseball for our little town, we were pretty good. Now, we were the smallest class in Iowa, but we always had really good teams. It was always my favorite sport. I've been really lucky, fortunate to be able to keep that in my life in some way because I played and then I helped coach and then I got into the business side of it. I was just so lucky to always have that as part of my life. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Now, not many folks remember that Larry Bird actually started his college career at Indiana before transferring after his first semester to Indiana State. What would people not know about you? What would they be surprised to learn about you? I don't know. <laughs> Nothing that exciting. I don't know. I think uh, I played a bunch of different sports and stuff like that in high school. I went to state in track in low and high hurdles. Oh, my goodness. I know. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't pretty. But it was. <laughs> that's the kind of thing that, oh, you've seen me athletically. Huh? So I didn't see you in your prime. We'll talk about how our careers intersect later on. But yeah. yeah, the image of you with the low and high hurdles, not something that I would naturally gravitate to. Now, when you enroll at Indiana State, at that moment in time, did you have any sense that you would one day be inducted into their Hall of Fame? No. First of all, I went to Mesa, Arizona Junior College for my first two years. We were ranked number one in the nation as the JC. I played with some really good players. Probably the smartest player I ever played with, Marty Barrett, was there. So I was there for two years. And after that, I I was lucky that out that I knew decently well named George Bradley and really actually he has an unbelievable career and did a lot of things in for the game and he called Bob Warren who was head coach at Indiana State and got me chance to go there so I drove out there and talked to the coach they offered me something and I agreed to it because I was excited and they were good they were just starting but they were good in my life I always I wanted to play pro ball because I thought what I really wanted to do was coach and and so that was my goal, just to play one year of pro ball so I could put that in my resume so I could try to be a college coach someday because that's what I wanted to do. It went much better than I ever expected. We had a really good team at Indiana State, good coach, good coaching staff, great people, great teammates. We had seven or eight guys that ended up playing pro ball on that team, which, wow. you know, and even to today, Indiana State is, I think, revered as a blue collar, very good fundamentals, get kids that work really hard and do the the right things. They got a great coach that actually went out, ended up coaching there after I was, when I was playing, I'd come back in the off season and coach. And Mitch Hannes is a great coach, does a great job there. And it's funny because I'll, I talked to a coach the other day at Clemson who knew Mitch Hannes from when he was at Michigan. And he goes, man, they have a really good program. There's a lot to be proud of. And I guess that's the theme from when I got there. We had a bunch of kids that were like maybe not recruited as high or not recruited at all. And we worked really hard and became good players. Now, when you get to pro ball, what were some of your favorite memories from that first year? First of all, before I even got there, so I didn't get, I never got drafted at all. And I went to, went back home to Iowa and I was working for my dad in the farm. And I thought I was going to go back and go to Indiana State that next fall and just work on my master's degree. And I was playing in this beer league. And I say beer, I say that affectionately because what happens was like in Iowa, North Iowa, these guys, they'd work on the farm all day. They'd hop off their tractors. They'd drive to the field and they'd play baseball because they loved to play the game. And so I played there and I was probably a little better playing shape than most of those guys because I just got done. And I had some crazy, crazy games because 
I, it was just, it was different. I went to a tryout camp in Mankato, Minnesota, and ended up getting signed there and going to play for the Expos in Jamestown, New York. And that was one of my favorite memories. When I was a little kid, I remember going to a barber shop in Rapids, Iowa, which is our big rivals. But I went over there and got my hair cut and the barber goes, hey, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I go, I want to play in the big leagues. And they started laughing at me. And that was thing like, that drove me like that chip on my shoulder of not being like people thinking I was good enough. It's funny. Mm-hmm. I didn't make all Northwest Iowa in high school. Not Iowa. All Northwest Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> that might be a, there might be as many people there as a 6A conference in Georgia. It's crazy. And I didn't even make, I would even, I didn't even get mentioned. I didn't get honorable mention. And that always tweaked me. So anyway, that's the kind of thing that always motivated me and got me going. And so when I got to playing pro ball, my expectations there were just to learn as much as I could and meet the guys I could. And I had a really interesting manager in my first year, Pat Doherty, who is like, if you weren't, if you're not in baseball, you would know him. But if you were in the game, he's been in the game for 50, 60 years. And what a character and a great dude and really fun and fiery little guy. Do you remember any sage advice that he gave you as a young athlete? He gave us this advice the whole team one time. We were on the road and down in New York and it was a getaway day. And he goes, we were down like 10 to 2. And he used a little more salty language than I'll use here. We're in the last two innings. We're down 10 to 2. And he goes, anybody start to rally? I'm fining you 50 bucks. <laughs> so that was his sage advice that day. No, he's a really good dude. Great baseball guy. And one of my favorite personalities in the game. Now, when it's all said and done, I think you may have played actually in a dozen cities or so. Were there any favorites amongst your pro stops? That's interesting. You put it that way. That's a long career in the minor leagues. I loved a lot of cities. I'd have to say, I really loved playing in Louisville. We played at this fairgrounds there and it held like maybe 35,000 people. And it, they'd fill it up, especially they'd get all kinds of college kids there and they'd have, they had this great beer place afterwards in the stadium that people would go to and the players would meander up there and we'd all just mess around. Other team would come in and stuff like that. I really liked it. And the people there, again, it always comes down to the people you're around probably that was a good place we had good teams so when you have good teams it's usually a lot more fun definitely now talk to us about the moment where you're told that you're being brought up to the bigs what was that like for you I got put on the 40-man roster in the fall the year before, Instructional League, and I got I went to my first big league camp. I don't think I gave up a run the entire camp. I had 16 innings and no runs allowed. I was the last guy cut, and nobody expected that, least of all me. So I got cut, and they go, they go to AAA. I was driving my car to Wichita, Kansas, and I think the Expos were playing the Cubs because I could hear the game on the radio, and they announced, they go, oh, Woody Fryman has been putting the DL, he's a relief pitcher at that time, putting the DL. And I'm driving like I'm about to Omaha, Nebraska. I'm thinking like, man, they might call me up. I was the last guy cut. They might call me up and get to Wichita and call my parents. And they go, hey, yeah, the Expos are trying to get a hold of you. So I called them and I flew out the next day. I think we actually went to Houston or something because I was in Houston. And that was the first game I attended. I never I didn't pitch or anything. So it was a surprise, but it was weird because it was like, I'm out of nowhere, but I thought I had a chance at it. At that time, you're just grateful for that. Now, before we started recording, we were talking about your first appearance against a live hitter. Now, we share something in common. Now, I had dreamed of playing pro ball, never got past college, didn't have the talent, but I did play against Dale Murphy, a two-time 
NL MVP award winner. And that was your first appearance on the Hill with the Hall of Fame catcher behind the dish, Gary Carter, and Dale Murphy at the plate. Tell us about that experience. I was a little nervous. So what happened was I think Scott Sanderson was pitching. He covered first. He got cleated in the back of his foot. So I got in. I hadn't been warming up or anything. Warm up in the mound. Get ready to go. And I was a relief pitcher. So I was used to doing that. No biggie. But the first guy up was Gil Murphy, who I've seen in Atlanta. He's around Atlanta, and I run into him at games and stuff like that sometimes. And what a nice man he is. What a good human being. So I pitched to him, and I don't even know if I was close, but I walked him. And for some reason, he tried to steal second, and Carter <laughs> threw him out. I'm not sure he was actually out, but he got called out. In today's game, they probably would have reviewed it. I, don't know, I might still be out there pitching. I don't know. <laughs> but he had on second. Then I ended up going I think four innings or so, maybe. I'm I'm not sure, actually. I know I gave up back-to-back dingers. Chris Shambliss and Bob Horner, the two outs. And then the next guy, Glenn Hubbard, actually flew out to deep right field on the warning track. I'm thinking like, oh, man, dude. I don't know if, I can, <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to do very well here. But anyway. Yeah, no, I think fun. you throw three shutout innings, which is great. And then you give up the four runs. And then you guys lose four to three that day. But for somebody who had no idea he was going to be starting that day, that was still an able performance. Now, one thing I didn't know, but in doing my research, you actually swung a pretty mean bat for a pitcher. So you had 286 in the bigs and 250 in the minors. Now, what was your mindset coming to the plate? First of all, Mark, 286 sounds really good, but it was two for seven. But I could tell you about each hit. That's probably a bad <laughs> omen. But here's what I did is when I was up there, I thought I could make contact with fastballs. Well, I swung at first pitch almost every time because I'm a pitcher and they think I can't hit. And they didn't know me at all. And I just swung at the first pitchers. I thought I'd be a fastball and I thought they were going to try to throw a strike. Because if they got ahead of me and they started throwing breaking balls, I had no chance and it would make me look silly. So I swung early in the count and often. Good strategy. I probably saw seven pitches. Now, in the film Field of Dreams, which is set in the cornfields of Iowa, a large part of the film is based around dreams and second chances. Is there a second chance that you long for, either as it relates to your playing career, corporate career, any other aspect of life? I've been pretty lucky, or I don't know lucky is the word for it, but I'm pretty happy with how things have gone in my life, and could I have done a better job here or there? I wish I would have had a more consistent slider. I wish I had a better changeup, because I'd probably be sitting on a beach somewhere, sipping a margarita. But I'm very happy. The most important thing you ever do in your life is marry the right person, and the person you have children with is the most important person in your life ever, and I think I was lucky there with my lovely wife wife. We've been married like 38 years now, I think. I traveled a lot. So I, I was kind of like the utility infielder. Like they don't want you to be exposed if you're in there too much. So I traveled a lot. So she didn't, maybe she didn't have enough time to, to no. figure out what was going on with me, but I don't really have too many regrets. You know? I think that's great. Now as a plan B, once your career on the field ends, you, unlike most players decide, Hey, I'm going to go to one of the best business schools in the country. And that being Kellogg at Northwestern. What was that transition like from ball field to the halls of Kellogg? First of all, after I retired, I spent two years coaching at Clemson. I was pitching coach there, which is another big transition. Because when you're playing, you really have to just think about yourself. And then you kind of transition into coaching, trying to think about other people. That might be a thing I wish I would have done a little better anyway. So I was there for two years. And actually, I went to interview Penn State for the head coaching job. At that time, I was going like, really, back then, maybe 20 good jobs in the country. And you'd make 
make any money at. And I went there and interviewed and I didn't get the job. And I came back and I thought, I don't know if I can do this for a long time. Because one thing about college coaching is you're going to do it right, the way I looked at it anyway. You need to be on the road a lot to do it right. And then if you want a family and a family life, that makes it really difficult. And you're not making that much money that allows you to make up for it somehow, try to. But that's when I applied at B-School and I got accepted at Vandy and I got accepted at Kellogg. And Kellogg, what helped me there was my agent was from Chicago and he knew one of the one of the professors at Kellogg. And so I went up and talked to him and interviewed and his character. And they invited me to come and I got accepted. And my background I mean, a lot of the people there had worked out in the business field, and I'd been in baseball coaching, grew up on a farm. I wasn't really involved with business side of that so much as bailing hay. That's what I was doing. So after you get your MBA, you begin your, your corporate career at Easton. And that's where our careers converge, of course. And we were so lucky to have you on the team. And I can remember in part why I was so impressed early on, the knowledge of the game, your smarts, and then your wry sense of humor. And that'll come into play with a story that I'm going to share in just a moment. But what stands out for you amongst your four years at Easton? Again, it's the kind of the quality of the people there. If you look at it, you were there, our marketing VP, and first my first direct work, Mike Zlackett, CEO. At Rawlings now, worked every day with Matt Art and Sourcing, CEO of Rawlings. You had Jim Darby, baseball promotions legend, amazing, and just knew so many people, had so many relationships. The sales guys were so aggressive and very good salespeople. Working with those people makes it more fun and easier. That makes me think. I would agree. I think that was actually the most exciting, dynamic, fun time in my career based on the young, talented team that we had, including you. And we didn't know what we didn't know. And it was a relatively small company. We were less than $100 million at the time, but we were making a big dent in baseball, softball, hockey, and because Neil Hermberg was on the team as well. And it was just, it was fun. And we were growing the business, doing cool things. And it wasn't very political. As with all things, there are going to be some politics, but it was roll up your sleeves, get stuff done. I think you had the unique ability, though, to say exactly the right thing at the right time. And I can remember one moment. Now, we were a dominant player, actually, amazingly, at the time in batter's clubs. I think we had the number one position in terms of the premium side of the business. And I arguably thought that we had the best batter's club in the business as well. But I can remember one time when I was trying to passionately rally the crew to protect that position because Nike had just entered the market. You rightfully so very gracefully said with a smile, hey, we are talking about Nike. And it helped reset the conversation because sometimes you do think as a business entity, you're bigger, stronger, better than perhaps you really are. And interestingly enough, I think about a year later, I left, switched teams and went to Beaverton. And then a year after I left, you also left as well. And you went to Mizuno. Now you spent 15 years at Mizuno in high level positions, first as the director of marketing, but then as the GM of the Diamond Sports Division, baseball, softball and then as VP of sourcing. How would you describe your personal leadership style? I wish I would have thought of that more at that time, actually, maybe. But I think what we tried to do, and the people on me helped me try to do that, is become more team-oriented, make sure everybody had a say in what was going on. Even if it didn't work out right, at least they knew that they had been heard. But as I get older, I wish I would have done a better job there. I have It's funny, I told you I didn't have any second thoughts, but I guess I do on some of this stuff. I wish I would have been better at listening to people in my career 
career at that point. I tried to be a good, open manager, but I think I could have done a better job there. You had the added complexity of being a U.S. subsidiary of a Japanese firm. So that adds its own dimension as well, I'm sure. But once again, we had a really good team. Bram Krieger was our VP of the sales, and he was in the industry forever really good at what he did. We had a really good marketing product department. And the product guys are really, had really did a nice job. And I think our promotions as well, the guys there, Barton, which actually worked, Greg Barton, which actually worked over, great dude. Yep. And Jim Goodagno, who's now with Wilson. But working with Japan was really such a great mix of their understanding of product and deep oriented development and the U.S. side of marketing and sales was really a nice mix. And I guess that's one of the things I'd probably be most proud of there is working with that team in Japan, getting everybody on the same side because the Japanese market is totally different from the U.S. market. And I think they were open to that. And especially after they saw we respected the brand and we love product and we were headed in the right direction. So I think that was important. So the guys I worked with over there, I still talk to guys that I haven't been there for what? eight, nine years now, probably. And I still talk to guys over there. And when they come over to the United States, we always go have dinner and tell old stories, which is really the fun of it all. When I got there, I mean, we were like maybe 17 million bucks or something total in the what they call diamond sports, which is baseball, softball. And we were over a hundred million when I left. Wow. You know, so in a real stagnant market with... Got to fight hard for market share. Not, yeah. And we weren't, we didn't go too much to the bigger mass markets because we tried to protect our product. We went there a little bit, but not, we always tried to be the highest prime point there. So we didn't do just massive units there in dollars. So I guess that's protecting the brand and doing that growth is, was exciting. I think that's phenomenal. Now, what compelled you to then start your own baseball product development consultancy? And then ultimately in 2017, your own ball go of brand. Because those are bold moves. Yeah, <laughs> bold. No, what we did was, I'd been there for a while, and we they actually were going in a different direction. So I went out and I consulted for a couple of years for some people, starting really helping Adidas, actually, with ball gloves. Went at Louisville before they were purchased by Wilson for a couple of years, and that was a blast. But I always wanted to do my own thing and do it the way I wanted to. So there came a time where it just made sense for me to branch out myself. So we kind of looked around the ball glove industry, and really, it's a hard, tough industry. So I went and looking around, I thought there's a training glove category, which is what I focused on. Which there wasn't a lot of focus on that right then. And I thought to get into ball gloves really hard, Wilson Rawlings, you know, those guys are really good at what they do. So to battle them directly is really hard. And we had custom, but again, other people had custom by that time. So I went to training gloves and tried to make better higher-end training gloves. And if you see what's like going on in the baseball industry right now, there's tons of travel teams. There's a bunch of guys that are training and people, I'm amazed, bless these people, but I go out to baseball fields now and kids will walk up with their gloves and they'll have four custom gloves. They're probably wow. spending two grand total on gloves. It's a lot of money. And so what's another 150, 200 bucks to do a training glove for a kid that really wants to get better. And you want your kid to have the opportunity to fix sell. I was younger. One thing like I'm very grateful for my parents giving me every opportunity in the world. I'm in Northwest Iowa and they fly me out to Arizona, Prescott, Arizona for a Jim Brock baseball camp. And that's how I got hooked up at Mesa. Like my parents did that. They were very frugal people and yet they were willing to invest 
and try to help me on that. I know I did that with my son mm-hmm. and daughter. So that's what I decided to do, and that's why we started in that down that route. And that's we've grown really well. I've had a lot of luck with. I deal with two guy, major infield coaches. One of them being Ron Washington, who is yeah, like sure. legendary, yeah. and we've done a lot of work with him. And also a guy named Trent Mongero, who was high school coach of the year, and now he's running a company called Dirt Bros, which is going around doing different infield clinics all over the United States, and mm. they're both unbelievable at what they do. That's great. What's your daily inspiration now running your business? I watch baseball every night. I'm a big Braves fan, so I'm watching baseball every night. And this year, it's been a lot easier to watch. Yeah, it sure has. But I guess I see like on Instagram and I see all the great plays and the great athletes that are out there making those plays. And if you could help some kid get to that level, that'd be pretty cool, whether they even realize it or not. But if you're trying to do things and make good products to make kids better players, I think that's cool. This is really not an industry to think you're going to make a bazillion dollars. It's a grind. It's tough. But if you're doing what you love doing and you're passionate about it, it makes it isn't really work. One, as you well know, in baseball or in any sport, probably your most personal, cherished sporting goods item of all time is the ball glove. That's just so important to a player, right? It's an extension of themselves. You shape it and form it. And I was saying, people sleep with their ball gloves. They put them, I don't know if they do that with bats. I think Uh, you're right. I think every ball player can remember winding up his ball glove with the ball inside of it, putting it under his mattress as the first break-in step. It's just part of childhood, at least from a baseball standpoint. So let's flash. You mentioned the Braves. Let's talk about MLB today and some key topics. So what do you think about the new pitch clock? First of all, I love the game. I didn't think I was going to like that. There's some part of those new rules I don't like, like the whole two disengagements. I think that's crazy. Pitch clock, I really like. And honestly, as a fan watching the game now, I like it when it's two and a half hours and not three hours and 15 minutes. Oh, I think it's game changing. I'm a diehard traditionalist as well. I was a little leery about it, but yeah, having gone to a game a couple of weeks back with some friends in San Francisco and watching the Giants, that was amazing because I think we were, it was like 240 versus 310. Should Major League Baseball return to Montreal? I would love that. Montreal is a great city. And until the ownership changed and they didn't invest, when I was there, we had car behind the plate, Andre Dawson, Tim Raines. And you really, Terry Francona is probably going to end up being a Hall of Famer too. There's four Hall of Famers right there. And then there's a bunch of other guys too that got traded. Fans loved it. There was 40,000 people there every night. It was, I think it could be a cooler stadium and stuff like that. But Montreal had some great fans. Now they're always going to be hockey fans. That's going to be number one. That's over in June now. <laughs> and, and you got to see the better part of Montreal because I can remember when I was at Easton, I had eight straight years where I went to the Canadian Sporting Goods show in February in Montreal. I can remember walking from our hotel. This was Valentine's Day and we were going out with, you'll know this name, Carl Fink and a few others. And it's Valentine's Day. So everybody's out with their wife, their husband. And there's this group of eight yohos, basically. We almost got thrown out of the restaurant. But I can remember walking from our hotel to another hotel to go to this restaurant. It was probably no more than two blocks. I've never been colder in my entire life than on that night in Montreal. One last question pertinent to Major League Baseball today. Shohei Otani, is he going to turn out to be the greatest to ever play the game? First of all, talk to Major League players and guys around the game. That friend yesterday I was talking with, it's a coach for the Mets, going like, that dude is unbelievable. One of the best in the game in two two totally different areas. And pretty amazing. He just has to have time. He has to do it a couple years anyway. I still think the best player I ever saw was Barry Bonds. I mm-hmm. know all the controversy there, but he's the best player I ever saw. But he couldn't pitch. 
Satani is unbelievable, and I love watching him play. I tend to agree with you, but I will reserve judgment because if he becomes a Dodger next year, I think he's going to become the Antichrist, at least in my giant's mind. So let's end with a lightning round of questions here. Besides Field of Dreams, what's your favorite baseball film? Bull Durham. Everything in that movie happened, just not in one year. That all happens in the minor leagues, just not in one year. And I think for as many great baseball films as Kevin Costner has been in, his character of Crash Davis is one of the best. Your first celebrity crush. First. That goes way back. Well, I'll give you some time to think. I was driving with my son today. We were going to go to a workout at our local athletic club. And for some reason, Robert Eden's name was mentioned. I dream a genie. And I was like, okay, that could have been mine. That's solid. This is later on, but... I say Susan Sarandon. Again, I go back to Bull Durham in the same movie. I think she was great. So what's your favorite personal baseball memory? You want to enjoy this, Huggy. For some reason, I got a save versus the Dodgers Ooh, nice. at Dodger Stadium. God bless you. And that was, I knew, I thought you'd appreciate that. I tell you, that was probably, and after that, we flew home that night, and that was a nice flight back to Montreal, I will tell you. Just you do stuff your whole life and you, know, you work at something and that happened. The other was like, I got one big league win and I'll never forget that at, uh, at Pittsburgh. I pitched four innings, didn't give up a run, got the win. My buddy came in right after that and got the save. It was a lot of fun. Right. Perfect. So what's the best lesson that you've learned via sports in your life? Baseball is a game of failure. Seven out of 10 times you can get out and you can still have one foot in Cooperstown if you can do that a whole career. So I think it's persistence. I think that's probably the most important thing. There's a lot of guys with all kinds of talent that maybe aren't as successful or successful as they could be because they're not persistent enough. To me, one of your most important characteristics, work habits and consistency. And if you do that, you got a chance. Now, my last question for you, you've worn so many hats in your life, figuratively, literally. Is there one that means more than any other to you? One thing, playing in the big leagues, you can do a lot of other things in your life as you get older, but you only have a short window to be a professional athlete. And that's one thing, like actors can do that for 50, 60 years. But if you're an athlete, you probably got 10 years. And to get there, not only just to get there, but also everything else in my life that is really amplified and given me a better opportunity. If I wouldn't have played professional baseball, would I have been able to get a job with Easton to get all started, which that's I'm extremely grateful for that. But I think you have to, I think that is what's the key to everything I did. And so the people that helped me get there and being there and then trying to take advantage of everything I could, I think that was the most important thing for me. I think that's what kind of set everything up. Thank you. That's perfect. Let's end with that. So Dick, this has been wonderful. It's been great catching up and I really appreciate you taking your time to share your magical and memorable moments in baseball with us today. Magical and memorable. Hmm. <laughs> so well put, Okie. <laughs> there you go. All right, man. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dick. In today's crazy world, I found it refreshing to just take a break and talk about baseball and small town America. I hope you did as well. This conversation also reminded me that sports success can't be just defined by big wins or large contracts. Dick achieved his dream of playing the game that he loved at the highest level. For some, that would be enough, but certainly not for Dick. Working with Dick and the rest of the Easton team still ranks as one of my favorite career moments, so it was fun to reminisce a bit. Hopefully, this conversation also served as inspiration for those of you that might be thinking about a career change or starting your own business. As my family and friends know, I'm a sucker for emotionally charged father and son sports stories. 
In turn, I'll leave you with one of my favorite scenes from Field of Dreams. Ray Kinsella, as played by Kevin Costner, is reunited with his father during a game of catch on the magical ball field that he builds amidst the cornfields of Iowa. In this poignant baseball fantasy, Ray knows that he's speaking with his dad, but his father John just thinks that he's talking to another diehard lover of the game. Enjoy, sports fans. You catch a good game. Thank you. so beautiful here. For me, well, for me, it's like a dream come true. Can I ask you something? Is, is this heaven? It's Iowa. Iowa?